You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Well, thank you for that singing, Wings. It's a joy and privilege to be able to open up God's Word together. I want to warn you so you don't get whiplash. I know you're used to one, maybe two verses a week. This week we're going to cover 58, and we're still going to be done on time. And no one told me when I need to be done by it, so... A few things are going to be a little backwards this morning. I'm going to use something from the New Testament to illustrate the Old Testament. And there'll be a few other things as we go. And we'll see at the end that it's all the way it should be. In John 21, Jesus is on the beach. He tells the disciples to cast their net on the other side of the boat. And they do so. And they have a huge catch of fish. In verse 10, Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. There's fish stories about what 153 means. One thinks that it's the total number of fish in existence at the time. Therefore, Jesus is for all kinds of people, every tribe. A historian much closer to the Testament times records for us there were 74 kinds of fish at the time. So even if 153 needs a significant meaning, it's probably not that. Some take the math to figure out what 153 means. 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4, all the way up to 17 equals 153. Therefore, it's talking about the Ten Commandments and the sevenfold gifts of the Holy Spirit. Others use a little different math. 50 plus 50 plus 3, so three times. And then three. So what do we think of when we think of three as Christians? It's a reference to the Trinity, of course. How about that the fishermen just counted their fish? It's the biggest catch they ever had. The Bible is not a book that needs a secret code to understand. If you're doing math to figure out some of those things, you might be doing something wrong. Jesus helps us understand how to understand the Bible. In John chapter 5, Verse 46, he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And in Luke 24, Jesus is walking on the road with some disciples after his resurrection. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And if we drop down to verse 44, that same chapter, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That was their categories. He's referring to the whole Old Testament, and it's all about Jesus. So as we come to the Old Testament, we're not looking to make it about us or to moralize things that are going on there. Yes, there are some good examples in the Old Testament, that is not the main point. When we come to the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, we often hear of slaying the giants in our lives. And they range from schoolyard bullies to various temptations, fear, discouragement, worry, guilt, or any number of sins. Number five, for some, takes on meaning. It's the number of power. Some recognize that Goliath had four brothers. That's why David chose five stones. The five smooth stones represent faith, obedience, service, prayer, gifts of the Holy Spirit, passion, persistence, courage. Well, that was more than five because everybody comes up with their own list. Some even have significance for what it means that they were smooth stones. 
Apparently nothing we face in life is small, they're always giants. We even apply this to our children. They're little Davids with little Goliaths to face in their lives. These type of interpretations you can find among Mormons, Jews, Catholics, and Evangelicals. While we do agree on certain moral issues with other religions, we do not agree on how the Bible is to be preached. It is a Christian book. And so we want to come to this story and understand it in a distinctly Christian way. We want to make sure we keep the whole context of Scripture in mind as we come down into this one point in the middle of First Samuel. We all know God created the world and he created everything good. Adam and Eve plunged mankind into sin. In the midst of being punished, God made a promise. A deliverer would come. Moses delivered the people. It wasn't him. It wasn't Joshua. The judges delivered their people. They often behaved quite badly, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Samuel, sons weren't any good, and so the people want a king. Samuel felt rejected, but it's really God that they were rejecting as king. So in 1 Samuel 16, we see Samuel anoint David as king, and Saul begins to be tormented by evil spirits. David is going to grow into Saul's replacement. We now begin to see the transition from Saul to David. The promise of the monarch was to deliver Israel from her enemies, and Saul is now unable. And we see this illustrated immediately in the story with Goliath. First Samuel 17, I'm going to read a section of verses and then explain, and we'll work our way through it fairly quickly, and we'll have a lengthier conclusion. Verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah, and Ephestamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a giant named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up a battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, and we'll be your servants. If I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and Israel heard these words, the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. First 11 verses there introduced to us Goliath of Gath. It's easy to picture two armies drawing up for battle with a valley running between them. Goliath would have been about 9'9", his scale armor, 125 pounds, the tip of his spear made of iron, which would have been relatively rare, weighing 15 pounds. I'm told our best Marines carry about 70 pounds. He's big. He's meant to be big. He's the latest in military advancement. He defies the people of God. We've seen movies where one hero calls out for another man to fight. It wasn't common in the Old Testament, but it was common amongst Israel's neighbors. A fight to the death was seen to be the will of the gods. To be dismayed is to be shattered, to stand in awe. They're greatly afraid. They're scared stiff. 
It's interesting that Saul, that uh, Goliath recognizes that the Israelites are servants of Saul. They've become his slave, and he calls them to become his slaves instead. Goliath makes a big depression, a big impression on the Israelites. He causes a depression. Goliath of Gath is better than Iron Man or whoever your favorite hero is. All the Avengers combined don't match up to Goliath. He's meant to loom large in the text. His defiance is a key point. We'll see it six more times in this chapter. Who will we look to for deliverance? To the strongest, the smartest? God has a way of making our idols look powerless against what we fear the most. Saw their king had become their idol. He has replaced God as the people have rejected him. The people were anxious about what the others thought around them. They wanted a king to look like the nations. Saul wanted to look like the nations. Even Samuel thought Eliab, the oldest son of Jesse, but God looked at the heart and chose David. Saul 2.0 has now appeared on the scene, and they have nowhere to turn. Saul used to slay his enemies, but no longer. Does anyone believe Israel's God is bigger than Goliath? We all see it's remarkable that there's nothing remarkable about David. What do we rely on? At the root of our fears and anxieties is an idol that is letting us down. Have we failed to see God as our champion? An idol is something that we trust in besides the Lord. Verses 12 through 19 will introduce to us David. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Nothing remarkable. The, the camera pans away from the military scene to the wilderness and we're introduced to a, a typical shepherd boy. David. We do have a parallel here. Goliath has come out for 40 days and done this. It's hard not to see a connection to Christ being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Verses 20 to 30, we see that David understands the problem. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the man who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? 
For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, Shall it be done to the man who kills him? Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. You have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not just a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. David heard. And as anointed king, we should expect a response. Goliath has opened his mouth one too many times. Again, the people of Israel flee and are greatly afraid. David recognizes he's an uncircumcised Philistine. He's outside the covenant of God. He's going to have to deal not with men or with idols, but with the living God, a God who acts in time and space and who is for his people. Goliath again defies Israel, insulting them, taunting them. David's words are weighty. Everything has been godless up to this point. David brings in a new perspective. He at least has the right starting point, a living God, someone who cares and intervenes in our lives. We see the providence of God. Never has a cheese sandwich been so important to a nation. The text is casual, natural. Jesse is sending his son to see how his other sons in the country are doing in war. God is orchestrating events to bring about his purposes Eliab's diagnosis of David's heart is quite a bit different than God's, perhaps some jealousy from not being anointed king. It would not be unusual for a king in such circumstance to offer money or a daughter in marriage for someone else to fight. Saul is acting like the kings around him. The people have gotten exactly what they asked for. David, perhaps exasperated little brother, can't I even talk? What did I do now? Verses 31 through 40, we'll see that David will fight. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. The best words, Saul says. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his word and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. The response David gets is, you can't do it. So I continues to think in human terms. Of course, a youth versus an experienced warrior is a reasonable objection. David responds, let no one heart fail. Remember, lion and bear. Shepherding was dangerous. This isn't some ridiculous leap of faith for David. It's a sound memory of what the Lord has done. He's the God of the then and the now. David has faith as the anointed one that his living God will deliver him. David is taking on his role as Israel's shepherd and must protect and deliver them. This threat 
had to be dealt with. It's not because David has the right stuff, luck, skill, or courage, but he believes in the right God. Next, Saul gives him his armor, man's armor. We shouldn't view this like it is in kids' books. It's way too big, and David looks ridiculous. It's not some Halloween costume for him. Saul tries to reshape David into his image. David refuses to be a little Goliath. He does not think or act like an idol. Zeal for the Lord drives this shepherd. He does not say that the armor is too big. He says it's not tested. What is tested? I don't think he's referring to a slingshot. He's referring to God. God is, was faithful, is faithful, and will be faithful. God doesn't say with sword or spear. Rather, the battle is the Lord's. God often uses the foolish to win so that no one can take the credit. And the Old Testament already by this point has shown numerous examples of that. Gideon would be one. Saul sends David to fight his battle for him. Unwittingly helps in the rise of David. Saul has to be thinking, you can't be serious. This kid with no weaponry, no experience against an experienced, armed to teeth, giant. There's never been a greater warrior since. We have no chance. I'm out of options. No one else will do it. God throughout scripture delivers without the symbols of man's strength. David writes in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some with horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. In Psalm 33, 16, following, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. and By its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. The army thinks the same as Saul. What's going on here? This shepherd is going up to Goliath with a slingshot. I think we can do better, can't we? The disciples think the same. What is Christ doing? He let them arrest him in the garden. He's walking up the hill to Gethsemane carrying a cross. We can't be serious. He's supposed to be our king. What is going on here? In verses 41 through 49, we see the contest. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David, and his shield bare in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to other wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank deep into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. David's shepherd staff probably did look like a stick compared to Goliath's weaver's beam. David comes in the name of God. Goliath comes in his own name, in his own power. David doesn't say, I come at you with slinging stones, but by myself with the army of God. Wild dog was a threat to the flock and had to be dealt with. 
Goliath issues quite a threat, and David responds with a mini-sermon. He's fighting for the fame and glory of his Lord. The Lord doesn't deliver by man's instruments, by his own ways. There's been a lot of anticipation leading up to this moment, weeks of Goliath coming out and shouting out to them. And it's melodramatic, it's over fast. We don't get the long battle scene of two great warriors going head to head. It's a knockout in the first round, the first swing. Goliath makes another impression, this time a depression in the ground with a thud. The Goliath, David and Goliath sports analogy that we think of really doesn't compare. It's upside down. David was no underdog. There was no contest. It was over before it even started. Of course, this isn't David versus Goliath, is it? Or even Israel versus Philistia. But Yahweh, the one true God, versus the non-gods, the Philistines. Goliath never had a chance. Who is God is what was at stake. The clash between David and Goliath was really a clash of beings much greater than you or I. One of the many gods in our day might be the god of sport. A lot of time and money goes toward it. Another one, perhaps because of how this text is often understood, might be the god of good behavior. We teach our kids to behave and forget to point them to Christ. We do the same ourselves. Of course, we want to behave what we can't forget about Christ. Earlier, the Israelites were supposed to mop the deck of these other people in their country, and they failed to do so, and they're in this predicament now because of disobedience then. Have we forgotten how to wield the one sword we do have in the Bible? Is this a picture of the contemporary church serving the wrong gods? Not sure who our champion is. Someone else fell on his face in 1 Samuel. When the, when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, they brought it into their temple, and their god, Dagon, was on his face the next morning. The Philistines, too, had forgotten there was a god in Israel and needed to be reminded. David is from the same lands as the famous slingshot throwers of Judges 20. Perhaps you learned from one of them. One source says David's stone was going 150 miles an hour. Sounds reasonable. I don't know who was pulling the radar gun. Big issue is that the Philistines, by challenging Israel, were challenging God. The question, would God fight for people that rejected him, is answered clearly. Who is God is answered clearly. The Lord fights for them. David, with no fear and no armor, with faith, runs toward the battle. Verses 50 to 58 will conclude our story for us. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shereen as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. 
And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine and took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand, and Saul said to him, Whose son are you, the young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So David proved there was a God in Israel, and the Philistines recognized it, seeing their valiant warrior dead. They flee. They abandoned what they had agreed to in the terms of the battle. And Israel claims victory, and Saul suddenly becomes more interested in who his new son-in-law is. David didn't win because of his own strength, skill, or great weaponry. The Lord was with him. Saul lacked the faith he was supposed to model for the people. The story of redemption is clear. David is not the hero of the story. David would recognize he's not the hero of the story. It is the Lord God who delivers. He uses a weak David, an annoying little brother, someone green in the world of experience, someone small, someone ill-prepared. Israel had compromised, and God raised up Goliath to show them their idolatry. There was no one else to fight except this small, insignificant shepherd with unconventional weapons, the last son of an old man. What are the people of the king to do? Shift from false saviors to Jesus. From fear, standing on the sidelines, scared stiff, to shouting and pursuit and victory. The king's confidence is contagious. The Israelites, us, follow Jesus, who has gone forth in victory. He has conquered so we can follow our savior and lead lives pleasing to our king. The victory is ours. We can rest in, follow Christ. Can we overcome the problems in our life? Yes, the scripture talk about how to deal with sin in our lives. Yes, but that's not First Samuel 17. You are not brave like David. We have the same deliverer David had. With a shout, we can move forward in victory following our champion. We can throw away and smash the false gods in our lives. Does his name matter to us? God's reputation is at stake in the church and in their lives. When the pastor tells a couple, he won't marry them. Because as far as he can tell, one of them is an unbeliever. When your coworker clearly doesn't think much of Jesus' name, you mention it to him properly, not because of you, but because he'll have to deal with the living God. You might be thought a little more than weird. When a church upholds what the Bible says about subjects that are big issues like LGBTQ, they stand up and say, we defy you. You will accept our position. Are we standing flat-footed, scared? Disobedience now will have consequences later. Some look to politics to deliver us, or money, or power. Do we look in the wrong places for answers, for hope? Yeah, we do. We're not really all that different from Israel. The God of cultural accommodation and tolerance is here. We want the approval of the people around us, of the culture, the gods of education, popularity, the philosophies of men are bringing out to us. The pressure's on. Are we scared? Are we cowering because we don't know God? Are in a covenant relationship with him? Do we know his word? The showdown in the valley is not about us slaying our personal giants. It's a picture of the kind of deliverer we need to kill a much bigger enemy, Satan and sin. The story is not about us. It's not about David. It's about a God who acts in history. David cut off the head of the giant. Christ smashed the head of the serpent as promised. Satan was no match for Christ. Christ went to the cross in the name of the Lord. The people even shouted it so. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They thought he was coming with a sword over through Rome. Did something much greater. Instead, he overthrew our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death. He disarmed them. He vanquished them. He won by dying on a cross. Satan had no hold of him. He arose as promised the third day. The debt of sin has been paid. Satan is vanquished. We need not fear death anymore. Christ lived a perfect life, obedient life. 
and he clothes us with his righteousness. He gives us his armor. May we fight with him. The gospel is good news. It was used to speak of the report coming back of victory over one's enemies. The gospel is the good news of Christ's victory over Satan, sin, and death. It's the good news that we can triumph eternally over those enemies through him. Do we boast in knowing the living God who acts in time and space for us? Saul the idol has become feeble, pointing us to the true champion, not David, but Jesus Christ, the greater David that comes, son of David. God is for us. We don't need to cower in fear because of whatever reason, our past moral failings. You don't have to beat Goliath. You can't beat Goliath. It's not in your power to do so. It's a clash of gods and kingdoms much greater than us. David is a picture of Christ and a tremendous picture it is. We have faith in God. Who can beat our God? No one. We're not on a losing team. Victory has been won the cross. Yes, we still have skirmishes now, but we know the final outcome. We do not win because we're courageous or we're like David. You are not like David. Ask your wife. Saul was a hireling. When the wolf came, he was gone. Saul and Goliath are from the same kingdom. Saul had slain his enemies until a bigger version of him came along. Jesus doesn't lose one sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep, and he has power to take it up again. Jesus, knowing full well what is going on, steps forward and fights for us. Don't go to the other shepherds. He won on the cross. He turned Satan's weapon against him. By death, the enemy that is death is put to death. Satan is crushed. Christ is our representative. He fights for the people like David fought for Israel. One person representing the whole. Psalm 24, who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. In Nehemiah 9, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness. Martin Luther wrote to him, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not as equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Does ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Colossians 2, one last passage. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The dead are incapable of action. They cannot respond to spiritual stimuli. The uncircumcised, unclean, they're outside the covenant. Sin is the basis of Satan's authority and power. 
God must act on our behalf. He brings us into his covenant. That legal debt, that sin is canceled. It's paid for on the cross. God's wrath is satisfied. At that moment, Satan's reign over God's people was done. The enemies of God have been publicly humiliated. Satan's kingdom received a blow from which there is no recovery. May those who do not know Christ this morning trust him and enter into a relationship with him. May the believers here remember who our true champion is. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for not trusting you, for forgetting who our champion is. Enable us to believe that you are who you say you are. May we desire as believers to live in a way that is honoring to you. May we be impressed with your strength. We're grateful that we serve a God that has fought the ultimate battle against sin and death and Satan and won. May we follow you in victory. You put the death, the hostility. You brought peace by your son, Jesus Christ. May the answer to the question, who is our champion, be as clear in our lives as it is in 1 Samuel 17. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.